0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit wholefoodsmarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network.
3: Hello, this is Dana Cowan, your host of Speaking Broadly. On each episode, I talk to extraordinary people who are behind the scenes in the restaurant industry and bring us tales of their successes and challenges. Today, I'm talking to an extraordinary woman who is the CFO of Tender Greens, which, if you don't know it, it's a fast, casual restaurant Uh, group based in California that now has 24 locations. And their special sauce, they have chefs cooking in each restaurant, and they're inspired every day by what's at the green market. I met this incredible woman, Lena O'Connor, at a conference recently, and I was struck by her intelligence, her candor, her humor, and her drive to success. Welcome, Lena. I'm so excited to have you on Speaking Broadly.
4: Hi, I'm so excited to speak with you too. It was so fun to uh, spend some time together last week. I've uh, been talking a lot about you to everyone since then, so uh, it's, it's, it's an honor to be together today.
3: That's what's so funny. I was like, actually, I want to have you on the pod so that I can talk to you more because though I got the tip of the iceberg, there's so much more I want to know about how you Came to this incredible position of being the chief financial officer of this ever-growing group. Uh, as so many things, I it seems like your journey began um, with your family. Your mother sounds completely extraordinary. Uh, she worked at Chinois on Main, and she started out. As a bookkeeper, and I would just love to hear what that was like. Like when you were a little kid, what was your mom doing, and in what way did that inspire you?
4: Sure. I mean, yes, she's she's pretty amazing. Um, you know, we're, she was an immigrant, moved to the United States in 1980, um, worked for a restaurant supply company where Wolfgang would come in and shop for the original Spago. And um, you know, he wasn't famous at the time. No one, you know, she didn't know. Who, certainly, didn't know who he was. So, um, it's so and it's, when it's it was Wolf- time to open Chinois in Maine. He said, "Hey, why don't you come and be the bookkeeper at, at Chinois? Um And she hesitated. She had a job. I mean, again, there was there's no reason to follow. Um, Somebody else that she didn't really know particularly well, but they had built a relationship, and she she took the plunge, and within five years um, she was the general manager of Chinatown, Maine. And you know, you're talking 1988 at that point. It was the hottest restaurant in town, and she's uh, she's pretty much a badass. I mean, she <laughs> she's always been an overachiever, and that's always been an inspiration to me. I think she probably works a little too much. That's just, <laughs> you know my, my my personal thought, but um, she's so. Dedicated dedicated to hospitality and to providing that experience to her guests, and um, that's that's always inspired me because I got to run around the restaurant a lot. I mean, when I was seven years old, I would, you know, they'd let me chop cucumbers in the kitchen. I know that doesn't happen anymore. Um, <laughs> I, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying that. Um, but yeah, I spent a lot of time at the restaurant. I, you know, when I was a teenager, I would cashier at lunch, and, you know, I always, I remember, um, you know, going to dinners from time to time at the Spago in Hollywood and I, before I worked there when I was a teenager, I'm thinking, God, I just, I wanted so badly to be part of this, this industry, so badly to be, you know, friends with all the chefs. Like I just, it, it was, it like drew me in and, um, you know, I just, I, I wanted so badly to be part of it. And then when I, um, graduated from high school, I went to college in California at Cal State Northridge and, um, this woman, Heidi White was the controller at Spago and she said, Hey, we need, we need an assistant controller. Um, it's part time. Time. Do you want to come work here? And I said, uh, yeah, absolutely. And it was just uh, such an extraordinary experience because I, had, you know, worked as a teenager um, a little bit, you know, during lunch at Chinoa. But just, you know, being part of the original Spago in Hollywood for five years, I ended up working there. Um, it was, I mean, it's hard to even describe. It just had so much history and um it, everyone was so passionate. I saw all these great chefs um, come through there, you know, in my time, and they they were about to open the Spago in Beverly Hills. So there was a transitionary period, but so you know, I Michael, have to ask. Michael Christie like, was there. Gina DeCue. I remember um, Thomas Boyce. I mean, like everybody, everybody worked there, and I got to be part of that. Ari, who who still works for them, um, it was pretty awesome
3: actually. That is is such an incredible um, group of chefs but I'm I'm curious if it were me I'm not sure I would want to work where my mother worked I think I would say like I need to separate myself did you have any feelings like oh man I can't do what my mom did that would just be you know bad who am I?
4: Yeah no absolutely I mean after I graduated college I ended up Actually, working at Shenwan Maine as the assistant general manager for a year and a half. And at that point, I had this big epiphany like, hey, I need to kind of carve my own path. I need to be my own person. And it's at that point that I applied uh, to go to get my master's at Cornell at the hotel school because, in my mind, I said, you know, if I stay here, if I stay on this path, like, I will basically turn into my mother, which is, you know, would be great, would be amazing, but I always thought that there was more for me. And you know, when I um, when I went to Cornell, I thought, you know, I'm not going to be in the restaurant business anymore. I'm going to be in the hotel business. <laughs> um, I'd convinced myself that that was a that was the path for me. And um, you know, obviously I had a great experience at the hotel school and met some wonderful people there. And when I graduated, I I went to work for Marriott because you know every you know revenue management was the big thing. People were doing pricing strategy. It was it was you know, Expedia was just exploding and there were all these kind of hotel, sexy hotel jobs. And, um, you know, I worked there for a few years. Culturally, I was, you know, wasn't really the
3: place for me. And why Um, is that? Like, why wasn't it culturally... Like, what is the um, difference you know, between? It,
4: it lacked, I think, some of the sexiness of the restaurant industry, some of the passion. It was a big company, um, and it, it just—I just didn't resonate with the, with the brand. And that's always been so important for me. Like, I want to be able to say, like, like I do with Tender Greens. When when I speak at a conference or speak with you, and you know, I'm, I'm representing Tender Greens, I'm so proud of that. It's such, its an honor and a privilege to be in my role, and um, I, I feel so lucky. And I think that that's so important to keeping me motivated and, and growing in my position and, and in my career is that, you know, I resonate with the brands that I represent. And that just wasn't the case for me um, with Marriott. And, you know, after some soul searching, I thought, God, I really, why am I fighting this? Like I grew up in the <laughs> restaurant business. I know nothing as well as I know restaurants. I mean, I know every angle of restaurant operations. Um, I was never a server, but I'm a great bus girl. Um <laughs> And I was lucky enough to get a job um, when I lived in San Francisco for Vine Solutions. Um, there's a restaurateur Ed Levine who um, had several restaurants left bank. They were called I think there was five or six, and I called up his HR woman, cold called. And I said, "Hey, I'd really like to work for you guys." do you have a job for me? And and she said, no, there's only a few people in our corporate office, but, you know, we have this company, Vine Solutions, that does basically accounting and consulting work for restaurants, and we're looking for someone who can be, you know, a, a my title is, you know, finance and operations consultant. Um, and I was like, that's, perfect like I know operations I know finance like sign sign me up and um, you know Ed and I sat with uh, with John Priest at the left bank in Corte Madera, and they pretty much hired me on the spot and I was so lucky to work there for five years I got to work with Gosh, like fifty different restaurant concepts in my time there. So I would come in and I would meet with each client every month. We'd review their financials. We'd we'd set strategic goals, um, operational goals to hit that would help them hit those financial goals. And it was um, it was actually probably one of my greatest jobs ever, because I could never in a career have experienced um, so many operations, been exposed to so many different operators, you know, multi-unit, independent, high-end, I mean, across the board, and it was, uh, it was pretty awesome. So um, that,
3: that was sort of like your PhD after the master's, because you, yes. <laughs> in seeing so many different um, organizations really up close, I guess at the end of the day, you can advise them and pick what model seems to... Work for you, but I'm I'm curious about one thing. So your mom was a, a bookkeeper, and you ended up on the <laughs> finance side. And you know, lots of people when they talk about the restaurants being sexy, which you you do. Generally, uh, people think the chef part is pretty sexy because you're you know forward facing. But you chose finance. Was it hard to choose finance? It, did it choose you? How did you end up in sort of accounting operations?
4: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I've always been a mathematical numbers person. I mean, as a little Russian kid, my extracurricular activity was like a math tutor on Sunday, not because I needed help, but because my parents wanted to accelerate my, my math skills. Oh, my goodness. Um, and I, that, that was just you know, all of my Russian friends did that. We were all, um, we were all math kids. That was just like part of the culture. I don't know. Um, and it was, it was so practical. I think, um, you know, as a self-proclaimed uh, perfectionist, I think, you know, when it's mathematical or operations there's a right or a wrong, you know, I think I never viewed myself as a creative person, which is something I'm I'm trying to figure out right now because perhaps I'm more creative than I give myself credit for. But I think it's, it's easier when you think, you know, I'm not a creative person, but I know I can get it right if I do it this way. And, and I like to get things right.
3: So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't we don't we all I mean, I, I think that one of the um, things about, you know, growing up sort of as a human is realizing that though math may be right and wrong, like in life, there aren't necessarily right rights. And wrongs so and i think that your role now as cfo is actually a a pretty creative role can you tell me what is it that you do as C- chief financial <laughs> officer
4: do i do um yeah i mean i'm definitely not a traditional cfo i, I don't have a cpa i mean i i know accounting it um Came naturally to me, but I'm by no means, you know, the best accountant out there, and I, I own that. Um, I've always tried to kind of weave finance through everything in the operation, and I think that's what's made me pretty effective in my job. Because right now, you know, I work closely with supply chain, I work closely with real estate, I work closely with the development team, um, I work closely with operations. So I try to kind of get involved in in everything, <laughs> and some sometimes that's great for people, sometimes that's not. Um, but I but I truly love operations, and I. And and unfortunately, you know, it's, it's not all unicorns and rainbows and it's not all glamorous and sexy. And, you know, it, we're, we're running a business. And so trying to teach people how finance and, and um, you know, financial performance weaves through everything has is, is been um, a passion of mine. And I, you know, started, you know, just to go back a little, you know, Tender Greens was a client of mine. And, um, you know, in the early days when I was uh, working with them on a consulting basis, a lot of what I did was just um, teaching everybody, teaching everybody financial literacy, teaching everybody how you know their actions as a chef impacted the financial performance, and you know people don't really want to think about that. And I'd you know. Actually,
3: I'm actually I fascinated joke, um, by that.
4: You know, and sometimes chefs don't care. I used to work. I used to work with chefs where they. I'd say, "Listen, your food cost is like 37," percent and they'd be like, "Yep, that's cool." I'm
3: like,
4: <laughs> but you know, you spend all this money building this restaurant. Until you pay that back, you ha- you're not actually making any money. And they're like, "Yeah, but you know, I want this menu and I want this special design." And you know, nobody wants to think about the harsh reality that you do take investor money and you do have to pay it back. You know, and and it's um people don't really want to think about that part. But I I think I was able to um, simplify the terminology of finance in a way that resonated with chefs and restaurateurs and made them more comfortable with the numbers.
3: So I think financial literacy is so hugely important. I mean, for every single one of us, you got to bring it to the the chef community. But um, as women, it can be challenging financial literacy, um, you know, as I mean, for for everyone. And I'm just wondering, what was the key to teaching the chefs? Like, what are the very, very basics that people need to sort of know, like, Chefs, or anyone who's thinking about their financial life, like where do you even begin?
4: I mean, I guess it depends on what they're thinking about. If they're thinking about, you know, opening a restaurant or, you know, their own personal you know, financial position. You know, it's 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 hard for me to say like where do you begin because it's it's always come naturally to me. So the way that I approach it is I'll you know, I'll sit down and say like where where are we struggling? Here are the results. The first step is really you know, seeing the full picture as it is, like all honest, like no BS, the financials have to be accurate and say, Okay, here's where we really are. What do we want to tackle? If you know, if food cost is your issue, okay, well there's a lot of areas where that might be um that we could address that could help that. Are you you ordering too much? You know, I always have this theory, and this kind of actually came from Ed Levine. You know, if you have three cases of avocados and one falls on the floor and rolls under on the floor and you're like ah, I'm too busy I'm not going to grab it you're like okay fine but if you have one case and you know it has to last you through the shift you're going to be more mindful you're going to say oh I don't want to I don't want to lose that avocado because I need it and, and it, it can be <laughs> little things like that and so that that's kind of how I started is like very like baby steps let's think of small strategies that don't mean like change your menu it doesn't mean change you know the product integrity like how can we do little things to actually you know secure our financial position and um and people like that because no, no chef wants to be told, you know, well, you can't use, you know, those truffles or, you know, you just spent a whole season coming up with your fall menu and, you know, it's too expensive so you can't have it. So let's be <laughs> creative in how we can, you know, meet our financial goals without um, compromising the menu. And, you know, working with, with Eric at Tendergreens, I mean, we put so much emphasis on product integrity. That's just one area where it's it's non-negotiable. You know, I, I joke, you know, one year, Eric was like, we're going to use heirloom tomatoes for the whole season, for the whole company. And, and I tell him how much that's going to cost, thinking he's going to say, okay, we're not going to do it. And he's like, okay, understood. We'll, we'll figure it out somewhere else. And, and we did. Um, so it, it depends what's most important to, you know, the restaurateur or the chef. And, you know, you can't have it all. Um, I think that's an unfortunate reality that people don't always want to face. Um, And you have to make some sacrifices. It's just a matter of figuring out um, which are the right ones.
3: So if I was going to extrapolate to um – the real world beyond chefs, right? And you're trying to run your own life. You're basically saying, take a really hard look at the entire picture and where you're um, letting something roll, whether it's not avocado or, you know, a haircut, (coughs) like where you're like, oh, it's okay. I, you know, it it doesn't matter. And know that every single decision you make matters so that you can make sure that the um, overall equation works, like, You just have to compromise within a whole. And I think a lot of people don't step back to see the bigger picture um, and to realize that they don't have to deny themselves. They just have to make trade-offs. It's sort of the same thing in dieting, you know, like you don't have to stop eating. You should just maybe eat less of something. In this case, spend (laughs) spend some less, spend maybe a little bit less money. Um, We're going to take a quick uh, break here and um, after this commercial, we're going to be back with speaking broadly, Lena O'Connor, who is telling us about the role of chief financial officer at an incredible restaurant group. Stay with us.
1: Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market believes in seeking out local, fresh, and seasonal food, and in supporting local farmers, makers, and the community as a whole, economically and agriculturally. Whole Foods Market believes in food that is vivid and colorful, fresh and full of nutrients. Food that connects you to your body, the seasons, and to nature. Food that helps you do more, sleep better, and wake up happier. Found in over 400 locations throughout the United States, Whole Foods Market only sells food that meets their standards, which means no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or sweeteners, ever. Whole Foods Market believes in real food. Visit wholefoodsmarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more.
3: Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and welcome back to Speaking Broadly. Today, my guest is Lena O'Connor. Lena, I can't wait to hear about the deal that you helped negotiate between Tender Greens and Union Square Hospitality Group, because that was a big deal, getting investment from Danny Meyer. And you know, in all the press releases, you're, you get the credit for that. What was that like?
4: Um, it was, it was pretty amazing. I think, you know, we were very lucky to meet Danny and it, um, and, and also Josh Golden from ACG and it felt like, like family. Um, they have a similar culture, they have a similar emphasis on, on quality. So it was, um, it, it was pretty surreal to be honest i mean sitting in a room with danny you're like oh my god it's like the godfather of hospitality and you know he's sitting here and he's interested in us and it was um it, it was an exciting time i think for everybody and you know the deal i mean i think just like any deal it's it's an Exorbitant amount of work, um, and but it was done in such a thoughtful way. It wasn't ever contentious. Everybody really wanted to get it done. We wanted to work together, um, and I think that that you know made all the work and effort um, fun. But you know, it was it was you know a very. <laughs> I mean, for nine months, me and David Dressler are are one of our founders. I mean, we were holed up in what we call our think tank, and we were working on this deal. You know. 24/7, and it was so fun. I mean, I was so excited to um, to make this deal happen, and and I remember, um, you know, you, you said you would talk about. it I remember the the day it closed. It was like I literally like burst out into tears in David's office. So I was like, oh my god, we we did it. I mean, we'd been working on it for so long, and. Um, you know, it's it's been so incredible even since we closed the deal to have, you know, Danny and Josh and Jeff and our whole board and, and um, their perspective, and I just I think we just feel so lucky that the timing aligned that you know. They were interested in making an investment. We were interested in finding investors, um, and it was, it was. It was. I think you know. Sometimes the stars align, and they did for us at that point.
3: Well, let's talk about tears because um, you burst into tears of joy, and I know that you know <laughs> uh, that sometimes life can get very overwhelming, and there are other kinds of, of tears. Do you um, do you find that there's just a massive amount of work, and it can get to you emotionally, or um, What about those tears?
4: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, again, you know, we talked about this a little. I'm, I'm an open book. I tend to, uh, you know, repress my feelings because I don't have time for them. But um, if I'm being perfectly honest, most of the time I'm like, I don't have time to deal with this anger, or sadness, or disappointment because there's too much to do. Um, and then eventually it catches up to you, whether it's tears of joy or frustration or, or whatnot. And, and they tend to creep up on me in unexpected times. Um, and that's, you know, something I'm working on. We all have the opportunity for, for improvement. And I I think, you know, I could probably do a better job uh, acknowledging the feelings when they come and dealing with them. But, yeah, it's, you know, when you're so busy and when there's so much going on, um, it's hard to make space for that.
3: <laughs> well, I think it's hard because you you have two brilliant children um, <laughs> and a husband. And so there's an enormous number of claims on your time. Uh, you know, do you believe that your life is in balance or... Um, do not spend time thinking about that because that would be. Yeah, I,
4: I mean, I don't think anybody's life is in balance. I think we're always off balance in one way or the other. And sometimes I'm giving too much to my job and not enough to my family. And sometimes I'm giving too much to my family and not enough to maybe my parents or my friends. And you know, I think you know, I'm always trying to reprioritize. And I think what I've learned over the years is, you know, we have a limited amount of time here. Let's spend our time in thoughtful ways and ways that are meaningful to us. Let's spend our time with people people um, that bring us joy and and be better about saying no. And, and, you know, I'm not perfect at it. Sometimes I'll look at my calendar on on top of, you know, my job and my wonderful husband and my kids. You know, I have a lot of social commitments. I, I like to participate in things like this. I like to speak at conferences. And I'll look at my calendar. I'm like, man, I have five events in one week and five night events. And I'm like, God, that's, that's not good for my kids. It's not good for my family. I shouldn't have said yes to all of them. And, but I want to do all of them. So it's, it's, it's always a little bit of, um, you know, push and pull and trying to, uh, not feel guilty for, you know, missing the event or missing bedtime. Right. I mean, it's, it's, um, there's no perfect formula.
3: It's, I I mean, I've had that struggle myself. I, I always felt like, um, at food and wine, I always could do more and at home I could always be there more. And I felt like that was probably, you know, for me, that was how the universe stayed in balance, that both were cheated. You know, if yeah. if one felt like it wasn't cheated at all, then um, I was probably hurting the other. So having work and home in some sort of both slightly deprived <laughs> seemed to me yeah. to yeah. be um, like the best I could hope for, and also showed that I just had, you know, a, an ambition to do the most uh, possible, which that sounds like you're, you're going as you're, I think, frankly, you're going much harder than I am five things a week. That's a lot. Lots. I know you do lots of travel <laughs> as well. Um, you've talked a little bit about personal growth and, and change, and you're up for an open to that um i know that you had a, a bat mitzvah recently and you're not 13 so i um i'm just i, I I'm, a, I'm a multiple of 13 so i, I, I turned 39
4: <laughs> this year so i figured it was, it would be appropriate to to have a bat mitzvah um <laughs> you put,
3: you picked a good year yeah, but... Go but um what what motivated that because i think that's an <clears throat> unusual and really wonderful
4: yeah, I mean, I think you know i'm I'm wired to pursue personal growth, really growth in all areas. And um, I enjoy challenging myself. and i I was at a point where I felt like, you know, despite everything on my plate, everything was familiar, um, and I I really wanted to find something that I could go deeper. I I've always been kind of searching for like depth, right? I mean, I'm doing a lot of things, but I wanted to go deeper. And you know, my kids went to Jewish nursery school and to Sunday school, and um, you know, I did not grow up, you know, particularly religious. We were somewhat observant, but it was a complicated relationship um, with Judaism because, you know, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. My parents lived in communist Russia where religion was completely repressed, so they could not be practicing Jews. And so when we moved to the United States, it just wasn't a priority for my family. Um, You know, and then as I had kids and I was trying to give them a Jewish education, I I realized, you know, hey, my, my kids are more involved in this than I am. And I, I felt kind of like a fraud. I was like, I was sitting there at services, you know, the two two times a year you go to services for the high <laughs> holidays. And I'm like, I don't know any of the prayers. I don't know any of the songs. Like, you know, if I'm going to do this, I need to be authentic. Like, I can't. it can't be BS. I can't be just pretending to be a joining to understand more about the history of our people and and where we came from. And um, actually my good friend, Dana Kibler, who's also a female CFO, there's not a lot of us. um, She reached out to me, she said, Hey, there's this B'nai Mitzvah class. Should we do it together? And I just, I jumped at it. I'm like, I I didn't know that that was what I was looking for, but when it came up, I was like, this is it. This is exactly what I need. Um, And it was a big commitment. I mean, we studied for, Gosh, seven months. I taught myself to read Hebrew. I ultimately chanted from the Torah without vowels. I mean, it was like this crazy out-of-body experience, and it was—I was more proud of myself for doing that than many of the other things that I've achieved because it was—it was so hard as an adult to learn this complicated language, to um, you know, dedicate the time. But it was uh, when I was learning Hebrew on the weekends. I was so happy because, like, I had to work so hard to learn it that I had to turn my brain off from everything else. Like I could not think about anything else but I had to be so focused to learn this like crazy language. It sounds um, like that's actually like a and form I, of meditation. I enjoyed that that outlet, that that opportunity, mm-hmm. that, that permission to focus on something that's just for me.
3: It does sound like a, a form of meditation, really. I mean the goal in meditation is to you know be able to focus completely, and it seems like that just shut the shut the world out for you did Did you find that it connected you or made you more curious about um the holocaust survivors stories or your parents' own stories? it's interesting to me that they came to the states and you know religion became deemphasized because of course it would also be possible to have the reverse occur so
4: I mean, listen, it's complicated. They came here, they had $300 in their pocket, they didn't speak the language, they had, you know, my mom's brother was here and that was it. So I think it was also just out of necessity, they just, they had to learn English, they had to find jobs, I mean, it it was... it was so looking back, I mean, how brave of them to leave everything behind and just like show up here and you know, given all. I let's not go into what um, what's going on in this country about immigration, but um, yeah, I mean, it definitely made me more curious. I my grandparents didn't talk a lot about the Holocaust. It's always been kind of painful for me, and I, you know, my grandparents have now passed away, and I regret not learning more. I think everybody reg- regrets something like that when their pa- grandparents go. Um, it was always just so painful that I chose to look away instead of learn more about it, and, um, you know, I am curious, and I, you know, part of my studies weren't just, you know, learning to read Hebrew, but we did Torah study. We, you know, read books about Jewish history, and um, it's uh, it's pretty, I mean, yeah, it's it's disappointing and, and sad and hurtful, and um, I just... Yeah, I, I probably am still suppressing my emotions about it, if I'm being honest.
3: Um. <laughs> Is there something from um, doing the, the Torah study and having this sort of very personal and empowering experience that, in fact, you translated back to the work that you do? Like, has, did it change um, your life in some meaningful way, or do you feel like you just picked up and, you know, kept going as something that you internalized and moved ahead?
4: No, it, it definitely, um, you know, when I finished my my bat mitzvah, I, I de- decided I'm going to continue to focus on Jewish studies. This just, can't just be it. So I'm going to go to a monthly Torah study class, which I'm happy about. But then it made me think, you know, what other things are out there that would make me happy? And, you know, we spoke a little bit about this in D.C. is, you know, I've been so busy doing so many things. You know, do all of them make me happy, or am I doing them just because, I should be because they're cool because it's such a great opportunity um you know and, and I'm trying to find that next you know I don't, I don't want to say commitment activity something that's actually going to bring me the most amount of joy and, and that's kind of my headspace after my abat mitzvah is like let me spend my time doing things that bring me joy spend my time with people that bring me joy and you know be better about saying no to things that that don't serve me or my family and it's um it's it's really it's it's easier said than done, yeah. um, but I'm, I'm working on it. I think, I'm always work, a work in progress.
3: I think one of the things that really strikes me is that it, after having had this experience of going deeper, which was very satisfying, you're looking for an, you know, another, um, it's like skipping stones. You know, you want to go to the, what the, the next skip is. You want to, um, go deeper so that you're life continues to have a deeper meaning. Um, And just, I can just imagine it's like a layer cake, you know, you put down this foundation of the bat mitzvah and then you find the next thing and let's call it, you know, salsa dancing. And then you have that and like, you just become a a richer, more amazing cake (laughs) by the end of it.
4: Um, That's a a great analogy. Yeah. I mean, I want to layer on the flavors. I want to, um, yeah, I want to do interesting things, and you know, I, I thought I wanted. I, well, we'll see. I, I still might do it. I wanted to do um, Krav Maga because I thought that would, you know, wow. I, I want to be able to like defend myself, and um, you know, I don't know. I mean, we'll, we'll see where it goes. It's it, it's a matter of really like carving out the time and dedicating yourself to it. And I was able to do that with my Hebrew study, and I enjoyed it so much, and it wasn't work. So I'm trying to find that next thing that's not going to feel like an obligation, but just a pleasure. Right. Um, and I mean, one of those things. You know, we talked about this with our with our mutual friend Ellen. Is you know supporting up and coming entrepreneurs and um, you know young restaurateurs who are trying to figure out how to make it. And you know, lots of people call me for advice. And you know, I pretty much take anyone's call who's asking for help because I so enjoy um, you know helping people. That that's that really. Um, we talked about this a little. That really brings me a lot of pleasure to help others. And um, I'd like to do more of that.
3: So on that note, I'm, there aren't a lot of women CFOs, as you mentioned, Uh, for someone who wants to follow the path that you've taken, what's the best way to go about that? Like, what's your advice to people who they love the restaurant business, or they love whatever, you know, they love another area, but they really want to go up the, the finance side. Like, is that an easy thing to do or are there obvious stepping stones?
4: I, I want to say it's it's really not linear, right? I mean, the, the CFO role is, you know, is so different in every company and every CFO. You can come up through accounting, come up through finance, you can come up through operations. There's so many different ways. Um, and I would say at the end of the day, if that's something that you want to do, you know, call me or find somebody, (laughs) you know, that's a role model or or a mentor and, you know, let's, let's plan it out. Let's, you know, set your sights on it. When I first came to Tender Greens, I wasn't the CFO; I was the director of finance, and I was like, I want to be the CFO. Like, and I came to Dave and Eric and Matt at the time, and I was like, guys, I want to be the CFO. And I and I put it out there, and I kept talking about it. And you know, what do I need to do to get there? What skill sets do I need to build? And, and actually putting in the work. You can't just want to do it without putting in the work. Um, that that it doesn't work out that way. It's it's not reality. Um, but you also can't put in the work without putting it out in the universe. Let's say you can't put in the work and not you know, communicate to your boss or whoever you're working with that, that that's what you're aiming for. And I think women have a tendency to put in the work without telling people what they want to achieve. Um, and I think when you put those two together, you put in the work and you vocalize what your goals are, that's, that's the magic.
3: I think that is uh, fantastic advice. And something that just has been a big topic of conversation is... What can we do to support or what can women who have achieved some success do to support other women coming up? Because we need more women entrepreneurs. Uh, we need more women in positions of power. And I think that advice of, you know, doing the work, vocalizing it, making it clear and and just having that that target and not being shy about it is critically uh, important. Uh, each episode of Speaking Broadly, we conclude with um, nominating a woman to the Hall of Dames. So is there a woman with whom um, you've worked or who you admire, uh, who you would nominate? They need to be in the food world um, and ideally living.
4: I mean, hands down, no question. It would have to be my mother, Ellen.
3: <laughs> and Why?
4: I mean, you know, she's been in this business now, gosh, almost 35 years. And what's your mom's name, by the way? such an amazing job in making people feel good I mean you should see the emails notes comments she gets from people um, when she goes to their homes and throws a party for them or you know she's created this environment I mean it's not easy to keep a restaurant open for 35 years but people keep coming back because they're they're connected to her and you know connecting to so many people is not easy not everybody has that gift um, and and I think that's something that I've learned from her and from my experience there is like at the end of the day we're all just people and the way that we're successful as we we learn to connect with others um and it's that's a tricky thing in this day and age where everybody's glued to their phones and it's easier to email or text and pick up the phone and talk to somebody but um you know making that human connection i think is uh is part of her success and i think is is important to everybody's success in the future even though i love my iphone and it's really important to me <laughs> um but uh we still have to speak to one another.
3: And so what do you think her secret of connecting is?
4: I think she listens to people. I think she um, she's kind of like a mediator diffuser. Like, she can make any... Any tense situation into a calm one, and I think that's what I learned from my two years, you know, running the floor at Chinois when it was crazy and busy, and we, you know, do three turns and serve, you know, two hundred covers, and you know, people would come in angry, they had to wait too long, and then by the time they're leaving, they're giving me a hug and saying thank you, and you know, it, it's how that you recover from a situation that people remember, not, they forget that they were angry, um, and and it's that recovery and making people feel heard and taking. Care care of that that resonates with them.
3: Well, I think that's a a beautiful way to end this episode of Speaking Broadly. Um, Lena, thank you so much. If people want to reach out to you or follow you on social, how do they do that?
4: I, you know, I'm not a big social media person, but <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I do have an Instagram. It's just at Lena That's it. Really, really creative. Um, or you can uh, reach out to me via email. Really easy. Just Lena at tendergreens.com.
3: That's Totally simple. And this is Dana Cowan. You can find me at FW Scout. I love hearing your feedback, things you like, things you want to hear more about, people you want to recommend to have on the show. All really great. I want to thank my engineer, David Tattashore, for an awesome day. And my in-studio lurker, <laughs> Carlin. And uh, have a great week. And we'll be back next week.